Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. What would you do to get the answers you want? How far would you go? Would you join forces from the other side to find those answers? Could you trust them to give you the answers you seek without trying to manipulate you or even the system that you represent? A hand was stuck out from one of the furthest two points in our country, 10 states, maybe more, separated one task force member and the other who claim to want to help. Theodore Robert Bundy is one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known serial killer to emerge from the United States in the era when becoming a serial killer was far more possible than now, with the technological advances made since these men and women walked this earth. DNA, technology, forensics, molecular breakdown, and more prove that in this generation of the world, it's not about the long game anymore. It's about how fast you can raise that body count. It's only a matter of time before you're caught, and if you're going to put up some big numbers on the board to come close to the infamy of men like Bundy, Ridgway, Dahmer, Gacy, then you know technology is the downfall, and you have to move faster. Ted Bundy played chess with each and every law enforcement agency that crossed his path. He was more than just a cunning street man. He was a highly intelligent, and if given the opportunity, he would run circles around you, twisting your words into a meeting you never knew possible. But could you rely on him to tell the truth? And could that truth hold the key to open the very lock stopping you from having it all? Robert Keppel, a Green River Task Force investigator on loan from the state of Washington, was swimming in paperwork, case files, photographs, mugshots of victims with their eyes staring back at him pleading to be found. 
the Green River Killer was seemingly everywhere and nowhere all at once. Men came and went from their suspect list, either by chance of passing the polygraph or by honestly being innocent, or even possibly being cunning enough to convince investigators otherwise. Investigators had seen this before right there in their very own city. They believe he began killing in his teen years in the 1960s, but he hinted at his first killing happening in the early 70s, and now he was back to help the men who hunted him hunt another capable of becoming bigger than Bundy ever could have imagined. So I ask you, had he turned a new leaf? Or was his ego on the edge of being bruised and he couldn't let anyone become more feared than himself? Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we carry on in the hunt for the Green River Killer. Over the last year, he grew quicker than anyone could have imagined for a man with the intelligence level of Gary Ridgway. What they didn't take into account was, on paper, he may not be a smart man, but on the streets, he was a genius, and he loved hunting and killing. Either the task force was going to stop him, or he was going to keep going until God did. Women who worked the street were aware of the danger their profession harbored, but after nearly two years, the shiny and new was gone from their danger of a serial killer on the loose, and they needed to make money to make it until tomorrow, and then start all over. Gary was a master of a double life, or so he thought. Two failed marriages and now the promise of a new wife, he couldn't let on that his secret obsession was hunting women of the night killing them, and then dumping them with the hopes of them never being found. He could keep living a double life until he couldn't. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of sex, murder, and adult language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel as though any of this could be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you.
Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. We have just a little bit to get to tonight before we get started. We are coming up on the last few episodes of this season and closing up the hunt for the Green River Killer. But don't worry, I have some stuff up my sleeves for the holidays to keep you entertained. As the season comes to an end, I'll be diving in to do finishing touches on the Patreon and it will launch as the year comes to an end, so be on the lookout for that. Along with the break, we will be hosting a poll to let you all select the next big name case to be covered right here on TTCL next season. Don't forget, you can always support the show by heading over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and making a small donation to the show or by shopping the merch store. If you want to show some love without a dime leaving your pocket, you can always leave a review or recommendation to help spread the word about TTCL. Don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on tonight. And if you're on the tube, then make sure you hit that notification bell and like the video so you never miss an upload. All of this can be done at no cost to you, and it helps trick those algorithms into recommending my show to other nerds like yourself. All right, you guys, enough of this. Let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. Okay, last week we dived into even more victims of the Green River Killer, and I know some of you are rolling your eyes to the sky because you feel like this is becoming monotonous. But here's the thing, and I ask you to hold on to it when you find yourself getting bored. We all know Gary Ridgway's name. We all know his face. But with a victim list of his size, not many can name the victims past the first few, right? I want to throw these women into the limelight of this case. I want their faces to be the ones seen. I want their names to be the ones said more times than his. They are the reason we are here tonight and every other night. Yes, we look at the moment surrounding their death, wondering what led this entitled asshole to take a life they have no business being in control of. We want the psychology, right? That's what we all are wondering. What made Gary tick? What made these girls stand out to him? Why did it have to happen in this way? Well, that means we need to know what we can about these victims, these women. What led Gary to choose them? If you haven't picked up on the pattern yet, Gary selects girls that are young, that are not fam they're not a familiar face on the strip, and if he can help it, he has been able to look at these women and see that they are estranged from their family, that they are virtually no one is looking for them, that if they do go missing, no one would notice with the possible exception of one or two people. He was able to perfect his hunting, and he knew which prey would be easiest to take without the entire flock realizing until their body turned up. These women weren't the Seattle socialites. They didn't run with the crowd. They were nobody to seemingly everybody. So I ask that you bear with me as we work our way through the remaining victims of Gary Ridgway's list. So, victim number 40 is Kimberly L. Nelson. She was born November 30th, 1956. When I started digging into Kimberly, you find that she went by multiple aliases, one of which being Tina Thompson, T-O-M-S-O-N, 
we had another girl named Tina Thompson with a P in there. But these two are entirely two different people. Here's the other thing. I'm finding different ages listed for her. But when I go and pull up on Find a Grave, you can see her, I guess, obituary. Or sometimes you'll get to see like a picture of the headstone. It's listed her as being born 1956, which would make her one of the older victims of the Green River Killer at being 26 when she would go on a car date with Gary and never be seen again. If you remember, we left off on October 30th last week with Delise Plager, which means Gary is still stuck in this killing cluster, seemingly being one of the longest ones to date. Kimberly had just moved to Seattle in around August of 1983. She made her way from her home state, Michigan, and for every city that she stopped in, she worked as a sex worker until she got to Seattle. Now, on October 30th, Kimberly or Tina or whoever you want to call her by, she was being processed out of jail as Delise was going missing. She had been arrested for prostitution and she was the sole sex worker for her pimp. And those who knew her pimp said he went around whining the entire time that she was locked up that he had nobody out there working for him, so he was getting no money. Poor pitiful you, right? <clears throat> so on November 1st, just two days after she was released from jail, Kimberly was back out on the street, and this time she was out with her friend Paige. The two had gone out pretty early in the day, around 11 a.m. This was time for them to start working. Now, we know from the past and then the women we've covered, typically... Gary doesn't hunt during the day. He loved the cover of darkness that helped him be able to pick up these women without anybody really being able to identify him. He could take them back to his house without them being able to identify where they really were, had they gotten loose, and then dump their bodies and no one would be around to see them, right? Well, now he's hunting mid-morning. We got a problem, right? Not really. Gary had just shifted over to the overnight shifts around this time. So he was already getting off of work and hadn't gone to bed for the day by the time he picked up Kimberly, which would make it his night. Well, for the last year and a half, with him being able to hunt under the cover of darkness, he's perfected his way of not being recognized or drawing attention to himself. That morning, Paige was picked up for a very quick car date. And, and from what I can just pick up from this lingo is you get in the car, you drive a little bit, you hide your car, you'll have sex, you exchange the money, and your John drops you back off. It's supposed to be one of the quicker ways to turn a trick. She wasn't gone long. But when she returned to that area that they were working, Kimberly was gone. Gary picked up Kimberly for what would be called a car date, I guess, and took her back to his house. Like I said, he was off in the morning hours because he had just switched over to the night shift. So he was able, he wasn't really able 
to kill and hunt under the cover of darkness. What aided him in this is probably the fact that it was a weekday because if you go back and you look at the dates and how they fall on the calendar, he really liked to hunt through the weekdays. So had it been a weekday, he was likely being able to get away with this because everyone around him, his neighbors, those who knew him, were at work. So he brought Kim to his house. Now, Kimberly was a very tall, blonde. She had short hair. She stood almost six foot tall. And that's just a little bit taller than Gary. So he was very timid on how he was going to pull this off. But in the end, he took her life with some vigor because she fought back. Now, there is some speculation that she was pregnant at the time of her death in the range of being approximately four months. The reason I say that this is because there was also speculation that Kimberly wanted to go home. But if she was pregnant and it was out of wedlock and the kid didn't have a father because she couldn't tell you which person was the father, that may have kept her from going home. So, was there anybody really in Seattle there to look for her? No. She had been gone from her home state for a while now. So, it's not like her family was going to turn and, and report her missing. This is very important with all of the victims. He picks them and I don't know what it is he saw in any of these women, but there was something that told him that if he chose them, they're less likely to have somebody go looking for them. Well, he hit the nail on the head here with Kim. Gary killed her and then he rolled her up in a rug and he placed her in the bed of his truck. He drove her out to a wooded area just off I-90 at exit 38. And Gary was having to be a little vigilant because he was dumping during the day. So he had to make sure that he did so quickly without being seen. The chances of him returning to Kim were highly unlikely. He didn't like to put that level of risk on him when he was out killing or when he was out returning to a victim and having sex with the body or whatever. He was very vigilant in that. So he dumped her quickly and he took off. Now, several nights after Kim went missing, Paige was out working and she was approached by a gentleman for a car date. He was a white man, late 20s, maybe early 30s, with brown hair and a wispy mustache. He drove a red pickup with a white camper on the back, which we know Gary owned at the time. Now, here's the thing. If you go and you look up Gary Ridgway, he has a mugshot for like 1982, I believe, where he was picked up for solicitation of prostitution. And he has this very like unnaturally unfull mustache. It's really weird kind of looking. He's got super shaggy hair. Um, it's just, he was very fitting to Paige's description. 
And she was very apprehensive about this man who had approached her for a car date at first. And then he went and said something that completely turned her off. He asked her about her tall, blonde friend. That was enough. Paige turned down the date. She was not going to get in the vehicle with this man. Now, later when Paige was brought in, she was able to pick Gary out of the lineup. This would be further down in the investigation, but they had already kind of started looking at Gary Ridgway at this point. Melvin is still sitting front and center of the, the suspect list for the Green River Task Force. They want to nail him, but Richter, who later would be, I think I'm seeing his name right. I could be wrong. And if I am, I highly apologize. But anyways, he was an early on, he was a detective and an investigator with the Green River Task Force. He would later go on to earn the sheriff's position and he would have the most humbling moment whenever he was able to arrest the man he started his career hunting down. So as Melvin sat in front and center, Richter has this like uneasy feeling about Gary and he was picked up for solicitation of prostitution. He was questioned when a boyfriend claimed that he was the one to take his girlfriend off the street and take her back to the house because he was able to identify the pickup and officers came out to talk to him about it, but nothing ever came from that. So we have several little instances where Gary just kind of pops up real quick and then goes away. So in the back of his mind, it's eating at him and he really wants to know what does Gary have to offer in way of how does he fit the profile, right? Well, they wouldn't have much time to figure that out. Twelve days after Kim went missing, Mary Mahan's remains were found in a shallow grave in a wooded area by 25th South and South 192nd, where Gary had convinced her to go off into the woods so the two could have sex, and he killed her. Then turn around on December 15, and Kimmy Kai Pitzer's remains were found where Gary had dumped her out by Mountain View Cemetery. Slowly, these things are coming to light. But Gary, he's not quite done yet. Victim number 41, Lisa Lorianne Yates. She was born in 1964 and was just 19 years old when she met Gary, unknowingly that he would be the one to end her life before she could really even get started good. Lisa had a little bit of a different, not really different, she had a similar background to the rest of the women. She was shuffled around a bit when she was growing up, shoveling house to house, uh, but by the time she got to her sister's and was living with her sister and her family, that was the longest place she would stay in her life. And it gave her an opportunity to become very close with one of her nieces. The niece was just 10 years younger than Lisa, and the two were more like sisters than they were aunt and niece. So it was really troubling that she had a family that missed her, that knew she was missing, 
but could never really prove it. According to Lisa's pimp or boyfriend or whatever his title may be, he last seen her around the 11 o'clock hour when she left to go to work out on her normal section of the strip by Rainier Avenue. It was just December 23rd of 1983, and it was just a couple days until Christmas. She was probably out trying to earn a little bit of extra spending money so that she could buy gifts or what have you. There's no real talk about whether or not she was involved in drugs or, or what led her to selling her body on the street. She just, I think it was just having such a troublesome background and becoming familiar with the act of just shuffling around from place to place and to her that felt normal. So that's how she began life. Well, like I said, with Gary working the night shift, he's able to hunt. And it seems like doing so, 11 a.m. is a good time for him. Thanks to all that practicing of hunting under the cover of darkness, he was able to roll up, initiate a date with everyone else out there driving the strip, the sun in the sky. And he was able to do his work without so much as an eye being batted his way. Gary normally took his victims back to his home so that he could have sex and kill them under the protection of his roof. However, on December 23rd of 1983, the protection of his roof was a little wounded and there were roofers at his house working the day that he picked up Lisa. So instead of taking her back to his place like he normally would do, he instead took her out to the Levitz parking lot near South Center Mall and strangled her in the back of his truck. He then took her body and dumped her out on exit 38 across the street from where he had dumped Delise Plager. We know because we've been looking at, at not only the victims he's picking up, but the way he dumps them. Along with his cluster killings, he develops a cluster dumping. And as long as he feels like that site has been untouched by anybody, whether it be a witness or law enforcement, he will continue to utilize that site until he knows for whatever reason, whether a gut feeling or visibly seeing like a police officer or witness in the area, he will use that site until it's just completely full of his victims before he moves on. Lisa Yates would be the last victim of this cluster killing and Gary would not kill again for another seven months. But the job of being a task force member was about to become harder than any job in this country. We are going to take a moment here to take a quick break for this week's sponsors and we'll be right back in just a moment. Welcome back from that short little break. Now, let's get to the meat of this week's episode. While Gary was out hunting and killing, the task force received a call. Wendy Stevens' remains had been found. The dog of the Highline baseball field caretaker brought back a brought back Wendy's femur bone to his owner. 
And this dump site was about to be front page news for a few days. The swampy area behind the westernmost baseball field was swarming with investigators and forensics. However, they would not be able to identify this victim until 2021 when they would positively match Wendy Stevens' DNA to the bones recovered. This is on March 21st. As Gary is out killing Lisa Yates, investigators are finding one of his bodies. Then on March 22nd, bloodhounds were brought in to help recover the rest of the remains for Wendy Stevens when they located another set of remains. And it was obvious that they did not belong to the original set that brought them out there to work. This set of remains was found 200 yards from where investigators were working, and it was the body of Cheryl Wins. Gary's closet of secrets were overflowing, and the magnitude of this investigation was far greater than anyone could have imagined. Cheryl's remains were just off the paved road running east to west, just north of the fields, and she was located under a large spruce tree. On March 31st, a whole new dumping site would be uncovered. Star Lake Road had another body, and it was covered with branches and debris. It was naked, and a rock had been inserted to the pelvis of this victim. We would learn that this victim was Dolores Williams. While investigators were working Star Lake Road, another dump site would come up. Another body was found on the high on Highway 410 at mile marker 37. An elk hunter stumbled upon the body of Debbie Abernathy. If you remember, she was the young mother who had just gone missing about six months prior. April 1st, Star Lake crime scene was still giving away its secrets, and investigators stumbled upon Terry Milligan's remains. Her hips were flexed at 90 degrees, and a striped, and a striped blouse with buttons had, was still wrapped around her neck and upper arms. They would initially feel like that the, the way the body was positioned, it was done so in a manner that the killer was trying to tell them something. In actuality, we would learn that that positioning was not for investigators. It was for Gary because he had gone back to have sex with Terry's remains after he had dumped her. I think he went back the following day and then decided she was so far gone he didn't want to return after that. Just down below Star Lake Road, lying in a small depression between a large log and the uphill side of the slope was another body covered with brush and branches. The body of Sandra Gabbert was now on the task force official list of victims. There were there was no issues with knowing who had been responsible for her death. Not when above her body was a small graveyard thanks to the newest serial killer from King County. Well, April 2nd rolls through and it brings with it another discovery. 
Just 200 yards southwest of Sandra's body, investigators found the body of Alma Smith. She was labeled as a scattered skeleton as they found remains away from the point of origin or what they believe was the point of origin. And so <clears throat> it was becoming quite clear Star Lake Road was comparable to the dump site of the Green River. Now, this is how Gary got his legendary name, the Green River Killers, from him dumping bodies within the Green River itself. However, once he believed that site was tainted, he stayed away from it like it had the plague. And so I think in the end, six bodies were found at the Green River and six were found at Star Lake Road. So it's very apparent he was hunting quickly and dumping just as fast, but the secrets weren't becoming unearthed until some time later. On April 20th of 1984, investigators had been working on fumes and this was something that was becoming what they considered a normal day in the life of being a Green River Task Force member when yet another body had been discovered. At the intersection of Highway 18 and Interstate 90, there was a body wrapped in plastic. Another one of the Green River Killer's victims, Tina Thompson. And I had just mentioned her name a little bit earlier with Kimberly Nelson. This would be the other Tina that we would know about in this case. Unfortunately, she would not be identified until June of 1986 because Tina was never reported missing. 1984 was quickly revealing the secrets held in King County, and those secrets belonged to Gary Ridgway, who seemingly stopped killing. He wasn't hunting on the strip. He wasn't paying for sex. He wasn't dumping more bodies. No, if anything, he was laying low, enjoying life with his new fiance. Now, in this time, Gary had a girlfriend, and then Gary decided to propose to that girlfriend, said the fiance title. And all was going great, but he was also watching as each of his other women from his other life were being unearthed from their hiding spots, spots picked by Gary as a place that gave the proper amount of coverage so he could commit his multitude of sins and then leave without ever hearing his consciousness. It's silent for him. And then this day comes. On May 7th of 1984, Gary's name had already come up a few times in the investigation and they were a little curious about why he kept popping up. So they decided they are going to bring him in and use one of their tools of the trade to see whether or not Gary was somebody who belonged on their list of suspects or was their suspect. On May 7th of 1984, he was giving a polygraph test in regards to the disappearance and death of a prostitute that he had been seen with shortly before the day she went missing. Gary would pass this polygraph and once again, he walked out into the free world with his name crossed off the list of suspects once again. 
Not everyone, though, discounted Gary for his part in these murders. Remember, Richter was, there was something just gnawing away at him. He knew he just needed to have the right thing in his hand to prove it. So here I got a hold of the list of questioning, and I'm going to go over that with you now. And it started with as follows. Gary, you have heard all the questions on this test. Are there any you are going to lie to? He answered no. Regarding the deaths of prostitutes, have you told the police the complete truth about that? Gary answered yes. Is your true last name Ridgeway? Yes. Have you ever caused the death of a prostitute? No. Before you were 30 years old, did you ever physically injure anyone without provocation? No. Were you born in the state of Utah? Yes. Did you know of anyone who has killed a prostitute? No. Before you were 30 years old, did you ever lie about someone to get them into serious trouble? No. Have you taken any illegal drug or narcotic in the last 48 hours? No. So going through this questions, you can kind of see that they had thrown in some that he would have to answer to truthfully because they were true. Very simple style questioning. And this is just to make sure they are maintaining that what they are reading is accurate as it can be. When you are giving a polygraph test, one of the things you need to know is what it looks like when they tell the truth. The other thing you need to know is if there was ever a moment in the last 48 hours leading up to the test that they had taken any mind-altering drugs. And the reason we ask, the reason that question is asked is because it can change the outcome of the polygraph test and render it invalid. If you take beta blockers, that's going to slow your heart rate down. Well, your heart rate is something that they look at during that. So we need to know that. Um, did you take any form of narcotic, whether it be prescription or street? We need to know that because that is also a very calming to the system. In order to bring you down and to stop from being overstimulated, we have to calm you. Well, that's what a narcotic does. That's that's that euphoric, I feel good kind of thing. It's because everything is sated all at once. So you have to plug in these little bitty questions that you know the answer to. You can guarantee what those answers are. And you can see what it's like for them to tell the truth. So that when they do lie, you're able to identify that clearly. If I will post pictures of the results of his polygraph. He didn't lie. I mean, he did lie, but he didn't lie. And that is why these things are so inaccurate and they're nine times out of 10 inadmissible in a court setting. Because you, if you are a very calm person who doesn't really get rattled very easily, you're going to have no problem with polygraph tests. If you're like me and you just mentioned my middle name, I will, you could ask me all the questions you know I shouldn't lie to and they're going to come back as a lie because 
that's just who I am. I'm, I'm very easy, easily shaken up by things and I don't like confrontation. And so that, that again is another reason why this is so inaccurate. We know Gary is the killer because he has admitted his guilt now in 2021. We know what he did. But in 1984, he passed it. And as far as anybody was concerned, he wasn't a suspect. Now, on May 26th, three youths in and out around the area of Govita Boulevard in North Pierce County stumbled on another secret. The remains of Colleen Brockman the ME would be able to identify her fairly quickly as her braces were still on her teeth. Colleen had been missing for nearly two years and the element stripped her of nearly every piece that could identify her except for those braces. Her body was in a ditch that carried water from the culvert that passed over or passed under Yovita Boulevard. Again, the elements were able to remove as much as possible to identify the victim. And had she not had her teeth or had her skull not been intact, it may have proved impossible to identify her until later. In June of 1984, something occurred in Gary's life that could have broke anyone and, and turned them from what is considered normal into a person who just commits crime out of passion. But instead, it didn't for Gary. Gary's fiance, the one he was engaged to be wed to, she met someone else and she ended their relationship calling off the wedding. Like I said, any other time you would think this would trigger one of his cluster killings. But with the news hot with each of Gary's bodies being discovered, it's probably not hard to say why he didn't pick back up where he left off. The secluded places he knew were being found day after day, week after week. He really needed to step back, regroup, and watch how this was playing out. He had a close call in the beginning when he was arrested in 1982 for the solicitation of sex for money, and then again when he was questioned, and most recently, the polygraph. So there's a lot of factors in there that Gary went, mm, I may need to make sure that I cross all my T's and dot all my I's. He needed to figure out how to keep killing, keep hunting, and keep from being discovered. Like I said, he may not have been a smart man on paper, but he was very clever when it came to street smarts. And since Melvin's still setting red hot on radar in the bullseye, and we know he fell his polygraph, well, Gary could breathe a little bit more easily. But as these bodies kept servicing, at a very alarming rate, it was very obvious to him it was time to slow down for a minute. 
Now we're going to see an offer of assistance come from someone no one would believe if there hadn't been a letter to see with their own eyes. A look from the inside, if you could say. Theodore Bundy, serial killer convicted in Florida for the rape and killing of two women and beating and raping of two more additional women in the Chi Omega House murders. The man that had come before Gary, the man that knew the coverage of the woods surrounding Seattle better than anyone, he wrote the book, so to say, on killing inside of King County and how to get away with it. But no, he was, but now he was locked in a cell behind bars and escaping wasn't as easy as it had been in Colorado and he had been sentenced to death. Before he had been using like uh, names of his unknown victims to kind of stay off his execution, but either he was running out of names or he needed a new way to solidify that stay. And maybe this was the one thing he could come up with. Help law enforcement from his hometown to catch the man that had been eluding them from the get-go. Robert Keppel is on loan for the Attorney General's office from the state of Washington to the Green River Task Force, and he is buried in mounds of information, all in hopes to catch their serial killer when he was handed an envelope from Theodore Bundy, care of Bradford County, Florida State Penitentiary, an olive branch that spanned 10 states from the most unlikeliest of sources. Was this a trick? Could he really give them information that would help close this case? Or was this one of his many mindfucks that he was almost known for more rather than the killing spree he was really responsible for? Well, mindfuck or not, Keppel was interested in what he had to say. And if he could capture the Green River Killer, then great. If he helped close out cold cases turned victims of Bundy? Great. If there was nothing more than pure entertainment, well, that right there was reason enough for Keppel to fly to Florida, but not before Bundy would respond to the acceptance of his help from Keppel. And Keppel responded to Bundy's letter offering his assistance, saying, quote, Dear Ted, this is to acknowledge receipt of your letter from the Green River Task Force dated October 1st, 1984. You request that any communications we may have be kept in, quote, strictest of confidence, end quote, is absolutely honored. I, too, am concerned that any comments made by you could be detrimental to the Green River investigation. I am interested in what information you have that could prove useful in apprehending the person or persons responsible for the Green River murders. In order to assess the immediacy of your assistance, could you provide just some facts about the nature of your help? I could tentatively visit Florida in the middle of November in conjunction with other investigation duties. I have made inquiry to your local FBI to arrange a possible visit. You may hear from them. The sensitivity of this matter is emphasized. I respect your statement of, quote, playing no games, end quote, and frankly, playing games with you 
is presumptuous on my part and a waste of my time. I am interested in what is useful in resolving the Green River killings and what your contribution is. We will communicate at your request only about the Green River murders and, quote, nothing else, end quote. Bundy would respond with a 22-page handwritten letter outlining Bundy's line of thinking on how to approach this case and would provide some interesting methods. By no means was Bundy going to be offering his expertise as a, quote, detective, nor did he have the desire to play one. The Riverman, dubbed by Theodore Bundy, and what he knew up to this point told him that it's those locations where the bodies were popping up that could offer them the most information. One of the things about Ted, and any of you who know this case knows this, Ted often went back to dump sites of his victims. He would dress them up with either nail polish or lipstick or whatever, just give them a little bit of life as the way I'm kind of seeing as to why he did that. And then he would have sex with their bodies. Sometimes he would take from the site something, whether it was a souvenir or even a part of the victim, as some of his victims were found headless, and many of those heads have yet to be found. Well, Bundy knew why he did what he did, and if you believe that load of garbage he spoke in the hours before his death, that pornographic images and sadism-style stories were his driving force, I'm not sure we can be friends. He was the most masterful conning man ever. He was intelligent on the street. He was intellectually intelligent. He, he got accepted into law school. The world got to watch him represent himself in the Chai Omega murders. He manipulated the court into marrying his wife while she was on stand, this man has done nothing but play the greatest showman ever when it comes to the true crime world. So for him to sit down and, and say that he had found God prior to, in the 24 hours leading up to his execution and blaming pornographic images and sadism material, I can't get behind that. I just can't. I don't feel like he was telling the truth. I feel like it was another one of his games. Even if he did see that there are multitudes of people who see porn, it is literally available to you via your device you're listening on right now with just a few taps of your finger. We don't have a bunch of people. I mean, we do, but we don't. You know, you and I aren't out committing murders because you had seen something pornographic or if you had seen Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie, did that cause you to go out? No, it didn't. Because there has to be a point for you to be able to say, that's fiction and this is real life, right? So to blame it on that's a load of garbage. Sorry. He was spoken... He was speaking to a man of God, man who followed the word of God, and Bundy played it well. That's just how I feel about that. 
he knew he went back to victims and he knew that he and the river man were cut from the same cloth. Bendy claimed that the task force was coming at this from the wrong angle. They were looking at the victims, where they were taken from, what turned the riverman on. But if they had focused on the dumb sites, he felt like they would get more answers. So when they find a warm body, he instructed, don't touch it. Instead, hide in the bushes like Gary did and watch that body. Bundy was willing to bet it all on the fact that Ridgeway was coming back to visit these women after killing them, as Bundy did. Bundy claimed that the Riverman wouldn't be able to control that desire to relive the kill, and he would have to go back to the dump site. All in all, that's a great theory. The one downfall? By the time investigators were finding the bodies of Gary, he had long moved on. The bodies they were finding weren't fresh. They were mostly bone, as he left most of them without clothing or jewelry to identify them by, and no protection to the elements surrounding them. He would cover them with debris to conceal their placement, sometimes for weeks, months, and several of them for years, decades. But Bundy may have done the same damn thing. So, in theory, on paper, great plan of attack, right? In reality, they weren't finding fresh bodies. They were finding victims who'd been missing for longer than just 24 hours. If they were to come across a body from Gary Ridgeway that was fresh, that should be priority number one. Don't touch it. Don't move it. Everybody in uniform out of here, uh, marked vehicles out of here. If you're going to investigate or you're going to stake out this site, you better be plain clothed, ghillie suit, something. Nothing identifying you as police needs to be seen because if it is, he's not going to return. He's going to keep on going. He's not stupid. Bundy talked about the reason that the Riverman's case was hard to follow was because the victims were either not being reported missing, or if they were reported missing, it was several days later, sometimes weeks later, a couple instances years later. Then to add that tracing their whereabouts leading up to their disappearance was damn near impossible. They aren't going to give up the Johns. They aren't going to talk about the way the inside work of sex workers goes. Not willingly. Not unless they're ready to give it up and make money somewhere else. And for most of them, this was the easiest money they could make. So, all of this are, these are facts that surely a trained detective or investigator had already realized. The victim's as far as tracing them back from Gary to where they originated from, not helpful. We've gone over a lot of these women's history. It really doesn't give us anything other than he liked them because they didn't have anybody waiting for them. And they could go missing for so long before somebody realized it, giving him 
the greatest opportunity to do the kill, dump the body, and make sure he did so right without having to feel rushed. So looking at this as far as the victims being point A and Gary being point B, not really the best way, right? And surely anybody with any kind of investigative know-how would know that. Now, the revisiting of the dump sites, that could have helped them a little bit further. But, again, we're not finding them fresh. Here's the other thing. This pile of victims, it was always ample. No matter how many he took off the street, there were two more replacing that one the very next day. So his pool of victims kept growing and they had no means of tracking these women. They had no means of making sure they stayed safe for their, when they turned a trick, nothing. Bundy was pretty right, but considering his uh, colorful past of acting and conning, he hasn't given anything really worth a damn. Not yet. There was also the thought that Gary may be portraying himself as law enforcement to get women into his vehicle and from there he would kill them. Well, Bundy's pretty good at that because we also know he did the same thing to lure women in for him. So this was an eye-opening piece of intel? Maybe? I can't imagine that it really is because I can, that has to be somebody's thought. But here's the thing. Bundy was able to talk to his victims, to come across as normal, as sane, as safe. Gary didn't have this type of social skills. Bundy did, yes. And in his psychology background, in his education, only amplified that for him. But Gary didn't have that. So as he's giving off key things that surely would have worked when you were investigating the murders of Bundy, I'm not convinced they would have worked with investigating Gary. This was a 22-page response, by the way, if I did not say that. And it had some inquiry about the items, notes, and facts not being printed in media, or at least not being printed broadcasted in his neck of the woods. So he was fishing for that information. So in the back of your mind, you have to wonder, is this just a way to feed that part of him that was no longer capable of going out and taking a victim? Was this just another way for him to get his jollies off? Or was he genuinely concerned and wanted to help? If you believe he was genuinely concerned and wanted to help, then you have to believe the fact that maybe he found something inside the walls of that penitentiary that he could not find anywhere else. But what was it? I don't believe that he found God. He was a man that was very stuck in his ways. And I think he was some, like some men who are highly intelligent and they tend to actually pull back from religion, pull back from the notion there may be a God. 
they are very like what's printed on black and white. What can I see? What can I physically prove has happened? And so a lot of them go with evolution. I don't feel like God was the one who spoke down through Bundy and, and made him go, yeah, I could probably help. No, some of it has to be, I get to stay my execution if I prove to be a vital piece of information for the investigation. So they can't kill me as long as that investigation is going on. And I can't break out and I can't kill. So at least if I know the details of what he's doing, maybe that will kind of satisfy my, satisfy my hunger for it all, right? See where I'm going? But I'm also not convinced he's capable of having that kind of release from that information. Not when the rampage he went on on the night of the Chi Omega murders, he was wild. He was a monster who had been starved for so long. And he came into this home that offered a buffet of his favorite foods. And you really think it kind of took him a long time to make his way through Chi Omega, and it didn't. That was one of the fastest attacks he's ever known to do. And to have multiple victims, and some of them actually survive, prove that it was not carefully thought out. It was not something driven as he had learned the in and outs of the Omega house. Nothing. He was literally a monster starved that needed to curb his appetite. And in the end, it got him caught. So, I don't know. I don't think knowing this kind of information would be very satisfying to him as far as maybe searching for a release. So, there goes that theory as well. Now, Bundy did point to the fact of the victim profile, and he said that if this profile ever changed, if he ever went from prostitutes to runaways, from one runaways to single women, on and on and on, that means he was changing his MO, which means that Gary was capable of changing. But nonetheless, Gary wasn't changing, and he proved to be very faithful to his victim pool of the women of the night. He never really strolled away from whatever it was that sex workers really offered him as being a victim. Bundy would end this letter with something to draw Robert Keppel and Dave Rector in. It was a method of getting the riverman to come to the police. It was a hunting plan of these dump sites and his very own profile of who the river man was. Investigators would take his bait. On October 12th, more answers were offered up when another body was discovered. A mushroom picker looking for edible mushrooms up around mile marker 34, just off of Highway 410, stumbled upon Mary Bellows' remains. The, heavy, the area was heavily wooded with large evergreen trees and a sparse surface of vegetation, which was perfect for mushroom picking and possibly speeding up the decay of a body. The only identifying landmark was that mile marker post. Mary was just 
200 yards away from it. On November 14th, two elk hunters discovered remains just off Highway 14 by mile marker 36. Martina Arthurly was on the southern side of the highway just before a curve located near a fallen cedar log. While all of this is going on back home in Seattle, Keppel and Reichert made their way down to Florida to meet the infamous Bundy. Keppel's first case as a homicide detective was hunting down the infamous man who walked into the tiny room with shackles on his ankles and cuffs on his hands. When the two shook hands, he remembers that Bundy's hand was somewhat clammy, and Keppel couldn't help but wonder if Bundy was a little nervous. Quite possibly, yes. Was he still as sly and cunning as he once was? Maybe that was what was on his brain. You know, was he able to fool the men who had come so far away to see him? Possibly. Could he trick them into thinking he's an important piece of investigation and stay his execution? Most definitely. But... Only Bundy would really know, right? Well, Bundy's taunting brought these two men all the way down, and he had a little bit of a profile of the river man. Quote, if this guy works, he works odd hours because he's Monday through Friday on the victims. Bundy had completely mapped out the victims, those found and those still missing, and the emphasis he noticed was from Sunday through Thursday. Gary hunted Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Only one victim disappeared on a Friday and only one victim disappeared on a Saturday. So that really kind of told a story. He had really unconventional hours, right? But we know that's not true. Gary had normal hours. Whatever caused him to not hunt on Friday and Saturday I can almost put out there as being those are the two most busiest nights down the strip. Think about it. You get off on a Friday. You don't have to work Saturday. Mm, just go down the strip and pick us up a girl. Well, if everybody has that same thought, think about it. Like When you go out on Friday night, restaurants are more full. Movie theaters have more viewers. Everything you want to do to kick back, relax, and let go of the work week, everybody else wants to. So, Friday and Saturday nights, kind of hard to hunt under the cover of darkness when everybody is out under the cover of darkness. In retrospect, I think that was more of a smart play on Ridgeway's plan of attack rather than it being a necessity to only hunt those days. Just a thought. Bundy went on to say, quote, Still quite significant to me is that after October 1983, it dropped off like it did. Nobody has turned up yet, and I'm not saying he stopped. Like you said, that's no guarantee he stopped. But he's gotten a lot smarter somehow. Something has changed around October of 83 because he may not have moved. He may not have been struck by lightning.
Something had changed, but not in October of 1983. No, the change came in February of 1985, long after Bundy came into the picture. The Riverman was killing through October into the early months of 1984, but there was only one person who proved to be capable of changing Ridgeway, and that was his third wife, Judith Lynch. As the Green River Task Force stacked the deck in their favor by getting inside the mind of a serial killer, and not just any serial killer, a killer familiar with their lay of the land, a killer who originated from the Riverman's hunting grounds. It's possible that no one knew the mountainside like Theodore Bundy. He had walked those mountainsides, he hid bodies below those treetops, he hunted the women of the same city, and he could give the task force the leg up they really needed. Ridgeway was finding solace in something else. Even as the news broke of his victims being found, he reined himself in, and the long clusters were becoming non-existent. Could a serial killer just stop killing? Was it possible that they could change their ways. Is it conceivable that the love of one could change the other in such a profound way that the path of wrong suddenly became the path of right? As Dave Reichardt and Robert Keppel sat in Florida hanging on the prospect that the words of the nation's most convincing con artists could lead them to the man they'd been hunting for the last two and a half years, Gary was finding that the monster inside was suddenly sated. But that desire would rear its ugly head a few times over the next 14 years. Bodies would keep appearing as his dump sites were being unveiled. Join me next week as we wrap up Cleanse by the Water, the hunt for the Green River Killer, and celebrate episode 50 of the show. This season has come and gone in the blink of an eye, but the cases we covered aren't even close to the tip of the iceberg. Remember to be on the lookout for that poll on which big name case we will cover in season 4, and for the details on the release of TTCL's Patreon. And as always, I leave you with one last line. Nothing has changed, but everything is different. Much love, the true crime librarians.